Hey, I'm Leo and a big welcome to The Sound Museum, the music podcast that explores that personal connection. In this very special bonus episode of The Sound Museum, this is my 2013 interview with the late, great Irene Cara. Now this interview is very special to me. It was my first time chatting with Irene and my co-host Jono and I had a great time chatting with Irene. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. By subscribing, it ensures that you don't miss any future episodes and it helps the show grow and reach more people. I hope you enjoy this throwback podcast. My next guest this morning is a singer, songwriter, producer, actress and dancer. Over the years, she set the charts alight worldwide with hits such as Fame, What a Feeling and Why Me. She is an Oscar, Grammy and Golden Globe winner, the fabulous Irene Cara. Hello, nice to be here. Nice to be with all your listeners. You grew up in the Bronx in New York. You spoke a mixture of English and Spanish at home. You played the piano from age three and recorded your first album in Spanish when you were just eight. What were your early influences growing up? Well, I, you know, I worked with so many terrific people. Uh, once I, I got settled into the American field of the entertainment industry, I mean, I started in the Spanish field. My dad was a, uh, a musician in a Latin, Latin mambo band, and I used to, you know, dance around, you know, as a child in Car- Carmen Miranda outfits. <laughs> and uh, danced to uh, dance in front of the stage, uh, in front of his orchestra uh, at uh, the Broadway Casino. So I was already doing nightclubs at six, seven, and eight years old, which I think is hilarious in New York. But by the time I got into the Electro Company and uh, with Bill Cosby and Rita Moreno, and and of course now the, the very famous Morgan Freeman, uh, who was not famous at all when I worked with him as a child. I had settled into uh, the American field and uh, was very fortunate to work with all kinds of brilliant actors as well as musicians. Actors, uh, geez, I don't know where to begin. Well, we could begin with uh, Bill Cosby, uh, Rita Moreno, James Earl Jones, uh, George Stanford Brown, LeVar Burton, Clint Eastwood, uh, Burt Reynolds, um, you know, just uh, a plethora of terrific people. As a musician, I worked with the late Luther Vandross before he was famous, when he was still a backup uh, vocalist uh, for David Bowie and Bette Midler. Uh, in fact, I'm the one who hired him to sing so loud in the choruses of Fame, the record. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I knew the average white band when they first came to New York. George Duke, who recently passed away. A lot of my friends have, have passed on, unfortunately. And, um, you know, it makes you... Uh, feel your mortality when you hear another friend has died, you know? And I've lost quite a few in the last five years, especially. You were doing a lot of um, singing, but you're also doing a lot of acting. Did you prefer one to the other, the singing or the acting? Well, because I started in musical theatre, working with Shirley Jones and Jack Cassidy, and working off-Broadway with some terrific people as well, I never really kind of separated them as one or the other. It was all performing for me, whether I was acting or singing. It was all part of the same energy. I never really made a distinction of that. I'm a, I'm a musical actress, you know, I'm a musician actress, and there, there are a lot of those now. 
but, you know, a lot of them come from theatre. I mean, you appeared in a movie called Sparkle in the late 70s and the acclaimed miniseries Roots um, in the 80s as well. You um, took a role in the movie which would ultimately change your life, which is, of course, fame. Your cast is Coco in the movie. It was based upon um, students at the Performing Arts School in New York, combining singing, dancing and acting. Looking back, what first attracted you to that role and did you have much say in the music in the film? I did have quite a bit of influence on the music. Um, I didn't get much credit for it. <laughs> but, you know, I did write Hot Lunch. I never got writing credit for it. Michael Gore came to me with a bass line and I wrote everything else. That was a little disappointing that they only gave me arrangement credit because, uh, you know, that was money that they didn't pay me. But uh, it was worth it, you know, because just being in the movie, you know, catapulted me uh, uh, as an international artist uh, on, on an interna- international stage. And everything I'd done before that really hadn't done that in the same way. So, um, you know, you take a little bit of the bitter with the sweet. Also, I had a lot to do with hiring the, the background vocalists for fame, like people like Luther Vandross and Vicki Sue Robinson, who was, you know, uh, you know, had a huge dance hit with Turn the Beat Around at, around that time. And, uh, you know, a lot of the singers from Chic and Change and, you know, people who sang with, uh, on, on all the Nile Rodgers records, you know, I hired all those people for Michael, uh, for Michael Gore to, to give that big choral sound in fame. You know, I brought that to the film. Fame personally means so much to me. You've got no idea. Um, it was the very first record I ever bought. I was six years old at the time. And oh, wow. <laughs> I remember being totally spellbound. Far, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I remember being totally spellbound, Irene, with the dancing on the car scene. And I have to say, I had a huge crush well, at that time. I didn't know it was a crush, but I was quite fascinated by um, the late Jean Anthony Ray, who played Leroy in the um, movie and the TV show. Um, I really wanted to go to that school as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jean was the youngest of the bunch. You know, he was just 16. He was a wild, he was the wild child of the group. And just, he was just brilliant. And he was, he was very much, there was very much a a lot about Gene that was that was Leroy. You know, he was tailor made uh, to play Leroy because he was in in so many ways. You know, Leroy, that character. In the Oscars, for example, um, you sang "Fame" and "Out Here on My Own" on the same night, and that was the very first time an artist had ever performed two songs from a movie. What do you remember most from that night? That was an incredible night for you. Uh, the medley they put together. They did a very nice job of putting together a medley and a storyline of me coming out of a Rolls Royce and, you know, <laughs> in, in other words, the, the, the Academy people, uh, production people did a great job of uh, doing a whole little uh, theatrical number out of, the, out of the medley. And I was very happy with what they did and, and we performed it really well. 
I got to keep my outfit. Fiona Aldridge was uh, the d- designer who, you know, was very prominent in the 80s, uh, a very prominent uh, clothing designer and a, a Spanish lady. What else? Oh, just the whole thing. The whole thing was like surreal. Sometimes I wonder where I've been. The track that um, everybody knows you for, of course, is um, Flashdance, What a Feeling. What was the inspiration behind that song? And tell us a little bit about the writing process for that one. Well, they showed us the last scene in the film, uh, me and Keith Forsey. They wanted uh, me to sing it, and uh, they wanted, you know, Georgia was doing most of the music for the soundtrack, so was Phil Ramone. And I said, well, look, you know, I'm not in this movie. If you want me to sing it, you're, you're basically playing me a bunch of chords. You know, you haven't finished writing this. I would like to, you know, write it if I'm going to sing it. And so they agreed to that. And uh, they showed us the last film of, of, of the last scene in the film. And um, Keith and I watched it. We hadn't seen anything else of the movie. We got in, in a taxi to go back to Giorgio's studio. And by the time we arrived, it was written. You know, we basically wrote it in the car. <laughs> I mean, it's such a wonderful song, and um, you write the song, and you touched on it before because you actually won a whole swag of awards for um, What a Feeling. You won two Grammys, and as a songwriter, you won an Oscar for Best Original Song. Singing the song these days, does it have a different meaning to you? Because it, it means so much to so many people, that song. Well, I, you know, I figured I needed to make the song be a metaphor for the entire movie. And since the movie was about dance, I, I basically used that premise of making someone's devotion to dance be someone's motivation for their devotion to life in general. And that was something, obviously, that I'd been familiar with because, I, you know, that was my life story at that time. Even though I didn't have a clue what the hell the rest of the movie was about, you know, I just focused on that premise and, uh, and putting that thought uh, into a lyric, into the song, into the melody.
the album What a Feeling um, in 1983 featured the singles Why Me, um, I Dream and Break Dance. Now, that was a dance craze in the early 80s. Now, I remember trying to break dance as a kid with some terrible results. Did you ever try and learn break dancing um, back in the day, Irene? No, I was there at the, at the inception. I mean, that was the beginning of hip-hop. It was, yeah. And, and it really was invented in New York City, uh, where I was from originally, the Bronx. You know, I would, uh, you know, run down my stoop, you know, and see kids on, uh, you know, just dancing and twirling on their heads uh, on on cardboard, you know, sheets of cardboard. It really started uh, in that area. By the time it went across the country and got to, you know, to be to become an L.A. thing, it had gotten very negative and very misogynistic and very vulgar and it became, you know, gangster rap. But originally, it it really was a form of protest. It had it was very it was it was about social conscience. It was it, it was about taking one's frustration and anger of being poor and being marginalized uh, because of race or because of poverty, and uh, turning it uh, turning that into something that you can get off your chest, so to speak, with your body. Uh, that's that's what uh, breakdancing was about, and that. That was the inception of hip-hop, the original inception of hip-hop. If you go and listen to all the original great hip-hop artists, Grandmaster Flash, DMX, they, you know, they were all very political and very social, socially conscious. And then, of course, you know, they were all about dance and let's have a good time. But, you know, they, they weren't negative at that time. Now, the music industry back then was a lot different to what it is now, and you got burnt rather badly by a former record label. How do you look back on that period? How did that change your career? Well, it changed me as a person. I, I had been everybody's child uh, for so long. My mother's child, my manager's child, my agent's child. I was everybody's freaking kid, you know? And uh, when this happened to me, um, I realized that you know, no one was going to defend me like my like myself, and uh, it was uh, a time for me to wake up and smell the coffee and really grow up and become a woman, which I did, and um, I'm very happy I did because whatever it cost me, you know, it was a fight that I won, and it was something that I had to do to secure my future, my financial stability, and I did that, and I'm very happy I did that because. You know, I have a brand now and I, you know, have three homes, uh, you know, and I make a very nice upper middle class lifestyle. Uh, I don't need to live in mansions. You know, I live amongst wonderful communities here in Florida, in New Mexico and in Hawaii. You know, if I hadn't fought the way I did in my 20s, I would have had nothing. You know, they would have gotten away with stealing everything from me, not just my career, but uh, all of my money. And so... It was, uh, you know, it was it was a wake up period to learn how to protect myself. You know that mothers and managers and agents and all kinds of mother figures that, you know, were ruling and controlling my life since you know I could walk. Uh, 
were not going to be around to protect me for the rest of my life, and uh, neither neither boyfriends or husbands. It was an, it was the kind of lesson I guess that I needed to have, no matter how how difficult it was, so that I could grow up, and that's uh, a blessing for me. It's really great for me. In the early 90s, you actually um, formed a hot um, woman band called Hot Cow Mail. Now, tell us briefly on the background of forming Hot Cow Mail and what's it, what's it all about. Well, this is the band that I'll be uh, touring with in November, and I'm very excited to present them to Australian audi- audiences. But they're the kind of female uh, artists that don't get the kind of attention they should in this industry. It's, you know, too much of it is is superfluous and, and uh, smoke and mirrors and not the real thing, you know? These girls are brilliant musicians as they are singers. And uh, that's what I wanted, that's the kind of statement I wanted to make with this record, you know, that women, especially women of color, could be, uh, you know, uh, beautiful and, and great singers but can actually play and write and sing their own music. And that's, that's what we'll be doing during... Uh, during our tour in in Australia. What sort of um, songs and music can people expect from Hot Caramel? Well, it's grown-up stuff. I mean, there's some dance, you know, some of it is, you know, pop, but it's still on a very adult contemporary le- label. There's a level. There's a lot of jazz, uh, which we're not doing too much of, but we're doing some of. Um, it's a double CD set, so there's it's really two CDs in one. Uh, that's why it took so long for me to finish it, because it was an independent project that I was financing myself, and it was two albums. So we're doing some of the first volume, and which is more of the commercial pop stuff, and then we're doing some of the second volume, which is you know more heavy-duty jazz, uh, acid jazz kind of stuff. Now, Ivan, you were last in Australia in 2006 when you performed What a Feeling at the AFL Grand Final here in Melbourne. Great time. It was just a ball. The people were wonderful to me, and I just adored uh, you know Australia. And I, I made a wonderful friend who plays with Yanni, an Aboriginal musician named David Hudson. If he's listening, hi, David, I'm coming. I hope I can see you soon. And after my show, uh, you know, I hung out with him and his family. He he, uh, introduced me to uh, his producers and um, his family. And uh, he he had a theater group there in Queensland. And I hung out on the beach, and he would take me around 
the town, you know, at night, and it was it was great fun. Irene, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me, fellas, and I look forward to meeting you. You come backstage, all right? We will do. Thank you very much. All right. Have a great day. Thanks, Irene. I hope you enjoyed that special bonus episode of The Sound Museum, my 2013 interview with the late Irene Cara. Make sure you follow the show on social media. Just search for Sound Museum AU on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. Also check the show notes with this podcast for the link to the YouTube playlist and the special Spotify playlist for my tribute to Irene. I hope you can join me on the next episode of The Sound Museum. Until then, have a great week and take care.